<laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just going to say I'm glad that you can speak. Otherwise, I'd just be doing it like with a pretend Hannah. Who would the pretend Hannah be? Either I would pretend to have like a Hannah accent or I'd hire someone off the street to pretend to be you. Can you do the pretend Hannah? <laughs> Please. We've all heard my accent of you. Uh, hello, I'm Lauren Burke and this is Bonnet at Dawn. All right, Lauren, your turn. All right. Um, hello, I'm Anna Chapman. This week on the show, we're talking about women writers. I'm speechless. <laughs> the person you got off the street was Dick Van Dyke. <laughs> oh my gosh. Hello and welcome to Bonnets at Dawn, the podcast that compares the lives and works of 18th, 19th and 20th century women writers. I am your host, Hannah Chapman. And I am your host, Lauren Burke. And this week on the show, we are talking about Mary Wollstonecraft, Godwin, Shelley. You almost couldn't say her name. I you know. Hannah. There's too much going on with that name. Let's just call her Mary Shelley from here yeah. on out. Do you um, think that'll catch on? Do you think Maybe. people call her Mary Shelley? Wow. Have they Friends ever heard knows. of her? Unclear. <laughs> Unclear. Um, I'm sure you guys know who she is. I'm sure quite of you guys have read Frankenstein. Um, I hope it was the 1818 version, which is the best version. Um, we're actually going to talk about that today with our guest. We're going to talk about Frankenstein and we're going to talk about Mary Shelley and just sort of like get into her mind a little bit, get into her psyche a little bit. We're going to talk a lot about Percy Shelley um yeah i hope i hope you guys are gonna enjoy this interview i really i really enjoyed doing it hey hannah who is our mystery guest today who are we talking to so this week we are talking to fiona sampson who is the former editor of poetry review the current editor of poem and a professor of poetry at the university of roehampton where she's also the director of can you guess the roehampton poetry center yeah. Oh, that sounds about right. I didn't give you much time to guess there, did I? Uh, <laughs> she's also a fellow and council member of the Royal Society of Literature, a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts, a fellow of the English Association and a trustee of the Wordsworth, Words, Wordsworth, a trustee of the Wordsworth Trust. Yes, she is. I got it out. And an MBE. Her poetry collections include Folding the Reel, the Distance Between Us, which is a novel in verse, and rough music. I mean, you know, in answer to the question, why did I choose Mary Shelley? I didn't choose her. I wouldn't have had the hubris to choose someone as important as Mary Shelley for my first biography, although I'd wanted to write a biography for ages. But I was approached. I was given the commission oh. because I had prepared an edition of Percy Bysshe Shelley. Mm. And an edition of his poems. Because Faber, who are the sort of serious poetry publisher in this country, have a series called Poet to Poet, where they get a con you know, a well known contemporary poet mm -hmm. to bring back, as it were, someone from the canon, but as someone that you would actually like to read if you read poetry. Okay. So not as a school or university study text and not as a scholarly edition, but mm -hmm. as, you know, 
for for the reader of poetry, for someone who really loves poetry and reads quite a lot of contemporary poetry, or a little, mm-hmm. and thinks, oh, Shelley, I mean, you know, where do I start? I love Given this their- idea. This is a great setup for a it's series. A yeah, it is. Well, they did. They did a series. Um, and they, unfortunately, they stopped doing them now. But um, anyway, they got me to do Percy, and I was quite resistant. But I was really glad I did do it, because I learned an enormous amount about his work from doing it. I mean... And- I, you're giving me a lot of Percy feelings in the uh, book right now. I think I'm about 70% yeah. done with your book. And I was yeah. having a lot of well, Percy thoughts. Absolutely. As you will see, he doesn't come out so well from his actual who he was in life. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was good news in Mary's life. And he wasn't in general, I think, particularly good news in the lives of the people around him. Mm-hmm. I think, I mean, he was terrible to his first wife. Right. With, with whom he also eloped. He eloped with... Mary Shelley when she was 16 but he had already eloped with his first wife when she was 16 mm-hmm. um, obviously he was a bit younger then <clears throat> and he had persuaded, he had tried to persuade Harriet, his first wife to bring along her sister because he believed in free love so he wanted this menage, you know this, yeah, he always wanted he two <laughs> he always wanted two, at least two, yes <laughs> And, of course, with Mary, he struck lucky because he managed to persuade Mary's stepsister, Claire, she's now known, to come along. Mm-hmm. And so he had, uh, you know, it was a menage right from the outside, right from the very first evening of their running away. You can't, Actually, I say eloping, but, of course, they weren't eloping because they weren't running away to get married because they couldn't right. because he was a married man right. with one child and another on the way. So, But he was running off to sort of found a, a, an ideal community, which turns out to be a free love community, in Switzerland with Mary Shelley, uh, Mary Godwin as she was then, and with her stepsister. Um, and en route, he wrote from Paris to Harriet, whom he'd abandoned, saying, why didn't she come too? So I mean, you know, incorrigible. Um, and the only thing that sort of saved Mary Sh- Shelley, as we call her, Mary Godwin as she was then, from being sort of stuck in Switzerland in a terrible, really cut off from everything, I mean, I mean, it profoundly from her family. I mean, her family disowned her for running away, but I mean, she would have been cut off completely if she stayed in Switzerland, was that he was just as bad at managing money. So he couldn't raise enough money for them to stay in Switzerland. So no sooner they got there, they discovered the only place they could afford was filthy and cold. They decided, you know, within 24 hours, we've got to leave. This is no good. And so they just came back. They hightailed it back to Britain by the sort of cheapest route, which was riverboat, um, you know, pausing only to get their their, their laundry done, to pick their laundry up. Um, and lucky for us, they came back by riverboat because, of course, in coming up the Rhine, they passed within sight of not Frankenstein Castle, but the at least the hills on which it stands mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. happened to do so by beautiful coincidence on a summer's night when they were sleeping on deck and when they were sleeping out on deck with a group of German students who go straight really for Mary's journal entries into the novel Frankenstein because one of them is very brutish and stupid and she doesn't understand why the other two are friendly with him and one of the others is extremely well-spoken, charming, intelligent, just like Frankenstein in her novel in other words and um, almost too good to be true really and of course it's they, it must be the students who told the Shelley party, let's call them, about Frankenstein Castle, which would have been about 50 miles away. 
Okay. You know, those are flies. And why would they bother to do that? Well, because it had all these great legends. I mean, right. there was supposed to be a right. treasure. There was supposed to be a dragon. But more than that, there was supposed to be an alchemist. And in fact, there really was. There really was a real-life alchemist who lived there um, who who claimed that he discovered the secret of life. Well, and that's, of course, where the name Frankenstein comes from. And, you know, it's part of the germ of the story. So it's a good thing for posterity that she ran away with Percy to Switzerland, but it wasn't terribly good for her. I am I am reading through all of her journals at the moment, and I am mm. trying to get a sense of her personality and sort of like how to portray her. So I am curious if you have... And what do you think about her? It's hard because she is so dry. There are things about her that almost remind me of Charlotte Bronte. Mm. Mm. I think there are women who are like very forward thinking and maybe a little too smart for their own good at certain times. Yeah. And then other things like with their relationships, I can't quite understand. I think that's exactly right. I think that Mary was almost geeky. Mm -hmm. I think she was very bright. I think she couldn't, I think it took her a long time to understand that, you know, she may have thought she ran away with Percy as his soulmate, i.e. as his intellectual equal, you know, that they'd recognize in each other minds that sort of spoke to each other. Mm -hmm. And he just, you know, he just fell for her for all the usual reasons. Right. Although right. early on, he would write to his best friend, Thomas Jefferson Hogg, and sort of say, you know, she far surpasses me in originality. It's her mind I love. Of course, it wasn't just her mind he loved. And he very quickly um, sort of, you know, wanted to relegate her, in a sense, to a traditional feminine role. I mean, very quickly, the entries, you'll notice, stop, don't they, about we are writing together. They still read together sometimes. But... It's much more, quite soon, it's much more that Mary Fair copies Percy's work for sending off to publishers. And that's what's collaborative. And actually, it's while she's writing Frankenstein that she gives up teaching herself ancient Greek to try and catch up to the level of someone who's been educated at Eton and Oxford. Um, you know, she's still interested in it. She still does translation, at least from Latin and Italian. But instead, during the writing of Frankenstein, she starts reading novels to see how they work. And I think that's really interesting. I do think her sort of annual reading lists are incredibly interesting. They tell us a lot about what she thought she ought to be doing and what and what more generally that kind of quite radical, you know, cutting edge group did think was <laughs> the important stuff to be reading and, and knowing, really. I mean, like she also reads Humphrey Davies' Introduction to Chemistry um, while she's writing Frankenstein. So Humphrey Davy was a family friend, a friend of her father's family. Um, so she knew him. But she, and he's already at that stage beginning to conduct um, experiments in, in electrolysis, so with electricity. But she, she's reading his Introduction to Chemistry, which legitimates what she does in the very first edition of Frankenstein, which is um, make alchemy although misguided, of a sincere peace with other forms of actual empirical science, actually experimental science. You know, mm -hmm. his take on it is they were wrong, but it's good that they were actually using test tubes and combining chemicals rather than simply sort of copying out from Aristotle, you know, which was a kind of a lot of what the rest of science was when it was called, you know, natural philosophy still at the beginning of the 19th century. So, yeah, so... 
so I think Mary was very, very geeky. And kind of with that, you know, as, as it does, a certain, she's quite literal minded emotionally, I think. I think she's very, I think she's square, as we say in England. I think she was very, yeah. you know, and I think she couldn't understand. But because, you know, one of the reasons she ran away with Percy was intellectual, because she'd been brought up in a family which advocated free love, mm-hmm. advocated the end of old fashioned institutions like marriage, you know, and although her mother wasn't alive, you know, she will have known that both she and her elder sister were conceived out of wedlock and that her mother advocated, you know, a quite radical, you know, direct action to change society. And I mean, as well as advocating, you know, education for daughters and the rights of women. And so I think, you know, she when she ran away with Percy, I think she thought, of course she was in love with him mm-hmm. and she was 16. But I think she also thought that she was doing something very intellectually correct. She didn't think she was rebelling. She thought she was doing what you did do if you thought long and hard about traditional institutions mm-hmm. and couldn't quite believe it when she came back to London and her father disowned her, wouldn't speak to her until the point, until the very day when Percy married her. So, you know, which is um, end of 1817, 18, 1816, end of 1816. So, yeah, I think she, and then I think she couldn't understand all these kind of muse figures who would kind of waft around, you know, flirting with Percy. She thought, well, why aren't they just my friends? Why aren't they loyal? I mean, Jane Williams is the obvious one, you know. Um, when Percy drowned in 1822, the friend whom he drowned with, the friend's common law wife, had been hitting on Percy while well, Percy had been writing her love poems. And and Mary was completely naively trusting of this Jane. And and that trust continued even once they both got back to England, Jane a year before Mary. And Jane put lots of terrible rumours about about Mary being a really awful wife to Percy and and really made it the case that she, Jane, was the one who'd been bereaved by Percy's death, not because she loved him, rather than rather than Mary. And it took Mary, I mean, it took her really, I mean, an impossibly long time to understand this was what was going on. She just couldn't, couldn't frame that possibility. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. happened kind of repeatedly with her female friends, well, with her male friends too. I mean, male friends pretty much let her down. I think she was very loyal and and quite emotionally plodding, quite straightforward, quite plodding. Mm-hmm. And I think that she was completely out of her depth with the kind of, you know, bohemia, really. Right. And, right. Um, and and people who are emotionally manipulative. And, of course, there were a lot of those because Percy and Lord Byron, who was obviously a friend and was actually very good to Mary, um, particularly Byron, I mean, he was a sort of star. He was an international celebrity and very dashing. And, you know, there were a tremendous number of hangers-on, I mean, including, obviously, Mary's own stepsister, Claire. And I think there were always hangers-on. Even Percy, who wasn't actually so famous in his lifetime, he was still becoming known as this talented, young, up-and-coming writer. And, of course, he was gentry. I mean, you know, he was the heir to a baronetcy. I mean, he wasn't quite as grand as Lord Byron, but, you know, they were... Yeah, there were lots of people sucking up to them all the time. There were, I mean, like a bit like you know, rock stars today. There's always there are always yeah. people to tell them you're a genius, and there are, there are people to tell them moderate your behaviour. You're just a human being, you know, <laughs> behave appropriately. And 
I think that was the case for for the person that Mary was in love with. So I think she was really out of her depth. That's how I read her. Yeah. And I find that very touching. Mm-hmm. That, you know, she's yeah, still in a sense a kind of naive schoolgirl, even when she's in her 40s and widowed and, you know, bringing up her son. You know, a kind mm-hmm. of touching, yeah, naivety and openness. Yeah. That's how she was to me anyway. Yeah, that feels to me a lot like Charlotte. There's, I feel like yeah. some... I don't know, um, maybe commonalities with like her relationship with yeah. AJ as well, where she, I think she felt like the they met on an intellectual yeah. level. Exactly. And that you know, she, transcended his marriage somehow. Exactly. Exactly. She felt she met his twin soul, her twin soul, and, I, and he manipulated her, you yeah. know, didn't he? I mean, you yeah. know. Absolutely. You know, men are colluding in it, mm-hmm. even if they're married. And yeah, I, yeah, I think that's, that's very interesting. I'm like, yeah. And it's not surprising, is it? Because if yeah. you are so exceptionally brainy as well as creative that despite the enormous social pressures and norms to stop you ever writing a novel or ever writing a novel that's good enough to publish at that time, you know, if despite all that you manage to be the exception who does do it, you must be pretty brainy. You must be pretty... It's not necessarily odd, but you are quite going to be quite self-directed, aren't you? You are going to be, you aren't, you know, a conformist giggling girl, right. even though you right. may like a laugh like anybody else. You know, you are, there is going to be something a little bit, I don't want to say masculine or boyish, but a little bit, yeah. There's going to be something that makes you a square peg in the round hole of conventional female roles. Yeah. And, yeah, good and good for them. You know, <laughs> for them. You know, because obviously they made it easier for the rest of us. And you know, do you think she was sort of like aware of like, like she did she feel like an outsider? Do you think? I think there were times, yeah, when she must have known that she didn't belong in either place. I mean, I think what's interesting is that during her life with Percy, she parrots all the orthodoxies that he's he has about you know oh, that poor woman, she's been made a prisoner of marriage and, you know, she's, you know, we, we, the group of radicals, have got it right. Yes, we are free. But I think that actually increasingly by the end of her marriage, she knew that she wasn't free. She was, you know, I think she was very unhappy when to be find herself pregnant the last time, of course, ended in a miscarriage that nearly killed her and so on. I think she was losing faith in the marriage and losing faith in that lifestyle. But still... While Percy was alive, she parroted it and she went along with it. Mm. But, and in, for example, was very kind to Lord Byron's last love because, you know, whom a lot of people would ostracize while continuing to kind of cozy up to Byron himself because she knew what it was like to be the unmarried, you know, lover of, a, of one of these poets. And, but then once... Percy died, so he died in 1822. She tried to make a life for herself in Italy, but she couldn't really because she didn't have, she couldn't earn enough money uh, because she didn't have, her her in-laws wouldn't give her an allowance. And um, Percy, of course, didn't have any money to leave her because all his money was um, raised in bonds against the moment at which he would inherit eventually. That's what you know, young men who were the, you know, the sons of gentry did in those days until they inherited, they kind of, 
they, yeah, they raised a bonds against their future inheritance. And Percy's father lived to be 91, which was enormously old in those mm -hmm. days, which meant it was only in the four year, last years of Mary's life that Sir Timothy had died and Mary's surviving son inherited from Sir Timothy and Mary was financially secure for all the time before that. She wasn't, and she basically had to earn her living by hack work. And of course, you can't do that remotely. It's hard to do even now. You know, you need yeah. to be in yeah. London networking, and you certainly needed to be then. And the people who might have helped her, for example, Hunt, who was editing The Liberal, which um, Mary and Percy had had got Byron to fund, to set up, to to help, precisely to help Lee Hunt, uh, the moment that Percy died, he really turned his back on her. I mean, he, he used her to get cheap lodgings. He moved in mm -hmm. his large family in with her and her surviving child, but he didn't really give her any work on the Liberal, the magazine that they'd gone to such efforts to set up as a vehicle for him. So she had to come back to London, but her in-laws wouldn't support her. They supported, they didn't want her to keep custody of her son. They wanted to bring him up themselves in a respectable South Coast gentry way. And, well, of course, they couldn't force her to, but they tried to force her by not giving her any money for her keep at all and um, only loaning her the money for her son. And that loan was always conditional on her good behavior, including right. never seeing the name Shelley in print. So she, very, she had prepared a posthumous edition of incomplete, but still very quickly of Percy's poetry after his death. And that was briefly in print and she was forced to withdraw it. And she was only able to prepare editions of Percy's poetry, which are the ones that we all, everyone relies on, um, right at the very end of her life when her father-in-law first weakened and then died. You know, he weakened because there were so many pirate editions and he had to in a way. But um, And she herself could never publish as Mary Shelley. She had to publish as by the author of Frankenstein. So, yeah, all of that made – so, but – that meant that respectability and money were incredibly tightly tied up in her experience and indeed in the experience of people at that time. So really the last quarter century, so the first half of her life, she is being bohemian and radical. And the second half of her life, the second 25 years, she's struggling very hard to become respectable. She's peddling like mad to become respectable. She sends her son to a good school. She can't really afford Harrow. She can't really afford it. So she moves to Harrow so he can be a day boy. Um, you know, she's writing the large part of a number of encyclopedias, biographical encyclopedias, anonymously in order to, you know, raise enough money to live. And she's trying to sort of network in, as it were, polite society. But it's very difficult because everybody knows that she's she was the lover. She was the common law wife before she was the widow of Percy Bysshe Shelley. Everyone knows about her rackety life. Um, she's not in that way she's different from the Bontes in that you know they were because they were you know up in Yorkshire they were secluded away you know through they could be introduced to London publishers by under male pseudonyms and so be dealt with fairly I mean Mary right from the start even though Frankenstein's also published anonymously was known to the whole, not known to her readers, but known to the whole London literary scene as a woman, and indeed as a woman who was Percy's, you know, common law wife, which right. was a terrible right. thing to be in those days. So she, partly through her father and partly through her 
you know, secretarial duties for Percy. So she never had the chance to be just a respectable and be for her work and her pitching ideas when she was pitching over and over for those ideas just to be seen on their merits. She just never had that chance. Just like always climbing out of the pit. Absolutely. It's... And she never could really. And even, you know, late on those last letters when finally Sir Timothy has died, I mean, those long, you know, she's endlessly preoccupied by trying to sort out the estate, trying to sort out the will, trying to sort out the estate, because both Clare, who inherited a large amount from Percy, because he settled a large amount of money on Clare, which is another reason why I think he actually had a physical relationship with her. Mm -hmm. Um, but nevertheless, she wouldn't, although she didn't trust Mary and kept writing complaining letters, she wouldn't come back to London and sort out her own inheritance. She wanted Mary to do it. And Mary's son, who was a very devoted and lived with his mother, but obviously completely lacked any mojo and wouldn't and didn't sort of pick up the reins of his inheritance and sort it out. No, Mary had to do it all. Can you tell me, I'm sure, I'm sure you know this way better than me, what do most people think Frankenstein is about? Versus yes, exactly. what is Frankenstein about? <laughs> I think most people think that Frankenstein is the James Whale film, the 1931 film with Boris Karloff as the creature. And Boris Karloff, stunning acting, stunning makeup. But it's a completely different myth because in the James Whale film, and basically that's kind of the Frankenstein of popular culture, there is a mad scientist who overreaches brings a creature to life by passing electric currents through him. And the creature is malformed, never amounts to anything, is just monstrous and has to be killed and is a threat and has to be okay as a threat because he's been tortured, but by the mad scientist's evil assistant. But still, you know, is, is a kind of beast, is less than a human, has to be disposed of, and then the marriage can happen happily at the end, you know, sort of mm -hmm. thing. Um, and Mary's myth is more sophisticated than that because it's a double myth, and that's what's amazing about it, I think. Because I think when you read the novel, you oscillate between being on Frankenstein's side and being on the creature's side. Because in Mary's myth, yeah, the scientist is overreaching. He is a mad scientist. He doesn't sort through the consequences of his actions. There isn't electricity, at least not until the 1831 edition, but that's a detail. Um, but he creates a creature who is ugly, but who is not just human, but is superhuman, is cleverer than us, teaches himself to read, teaches himself to speak, goes from being an infant, a uh, you know, a blank a tabula rasa mind to being a fully functioning human in a matter of months, um, runs faster than us, it feels love and grief and abandonment like us, and most fundamentally of all, has kind of moral responsibility. I mean, in the book, there's no question that the creature is morally culpable of his murders. He's not like a wild beast. It escapes and it needs to be shot with a tranquilizer dart or indeed put down. But it isn't morally evil, it's just dangerous. Mm -hmm. Mary's creature is morally wrong. He is, he is a human. He's a human in the wrong body. And that's a very sophisticated and moving story. Because when in the right in the middle of the novel, the creature comes to his maker and says, you made me this way, and then you've punished me for making me this way by refusing to make him a mate, by making him un unlovable, and then refusing to make him a mate. You know, that's the same. Mary makes it 
Mary Shelley makes that very clear that that's the same thing as the expulsion from paradise in the Bible, because she has an epigraph from Milton's Paradise Lost, and it's a passage where Adam says to his, to God, you're driving me out of paradise. You made me fallible, and now you're punishing me for being fallible? You know, how can you be a loving creator? How can you be my father? And the creature says the same thing for Frankenstein. That's an incredibly moving, incredibly powerful way to think about all sorts of things, from simple race and othering to you know, what do we, what about the human rights of, um, well, people used to talk about test tube babies. Now we're perfectly used to IVF, but, you know, people used to talk about Frankenstein people when, when they had transplants, heart transplants. Mm -hmm. um, it's a very, you know, who are we othering and why on the one hand? And on the other hand, yes, science has to of course blue sky science has to go on and blue sky technology too blue sky innovation of various kinds have has to go on and has to go ahead of society but it isn't innocent of its responsibility to society mm -hmm. you know you have to society has to a, an invention like say splitting the atom creates a new moral context and society has then got to catch up and frame the morals that contain that innovation and the way it will be used, you know, um, generating energy good, bombs bad, you know, as an right. obvious example, right. with, you know, splitting the atom. But, of course, that's true of all sorts of things, and it's true of things like AI today. But I also think it will be true of whatever we think is the most threatening to our human identity innovation in 10 or 20 years time it may not be ai who knows what it'll be and that's why it's such a phenomenal book because it it's got these two myths pulling on each other you do at times feel compassion for the creature you feel empathy you feel yes he's been abandoned and then he commits murder and he commits lots of murders mm -hmm. and you think then he would draw back and then you you think, yeah, the scientist, he's an idealist. He's looking for hes looking for the secret of life, and that's an amazing thing. But then he's hubristic, and he goes too far, and he doesn't think about the consequences of his actions. And many people around him, all the people who are dear to him in his life, in, in his life are either bereaved or killed as a result of, you know, what he does. So it's an extraordinarily sophisticated paradigm and then, actually, it's a beautifully written novel. I mean, one of the things, I mean, like you say, I mean, it is taught in high school and university now, but it certainly wasn't when I was at school, which is you know, not forever ago, and quite the reverse. It was very much, oh, well, Frankenstein, yeah, there is a novel, but it's kind of fragmentary, and it's by the wife of Percy Bysshe Shelley, and she never wrote anything else, and he probably wrote it. And anyway, it was sorted about, out by the film. Somehow, it was sense that the novel was just a kernel, but it's the opposite. The novel is much more than the film because the novel also has this amazing Chinese box structure. So in the middle you have at the heart, and it's all first-person narrative. So in the middle you have the creature comes back on the murder glass to confront Frankenstein. It's this great speech. He says, you know, you created me. My life is terrible. You know, you created me loveless. Existentially, there's no worse way to be in the world. First person. So you identify with him because he's speaking in the first person. As you read it, you are speaking, you are reading his voice. And then that's framed by Frankenstein's account because Frankenstein 
tells the whole story, including the first person account that he receives from his creature. And he tells it to the framing story, which is Captain Walton. And Captain Walton also tells it in the first person to his sister, who is back in England. And Captain Walton is himself an overreaching, a mad scientist, because he wants to be the sort of, he wants to reach further, he wants to reach not quite the North Pole, because they didn't have that idea there, but he wants to reach further north than anybody's been before. And he's happy to sacrifice the life of his crew in order to achieve scientific glory. And Frankenstein, to underline the parallel for us, Mary has Frankenstein say, oh, you two have drunk of the draft of, of glory, of hubris. In other words, you know, you're doing the same, you're the same as me, you're doing the same thing as me. And actually, after that conversation, Walton draws back and he decides he will save the life of his crew and he will come back to civilization. Um, but those three first-person narrations, the creature, Frankenstein, Walton, there they are. And because they're first-person, you enter into the, their personality by turn, and it's a stunning structure. And it's a stunning story. It's a stunning myth. It is an amazing achievement. Now, do you think, I mean, I think it can be read as a proto-feminist text, but do you think also that was part of her intention? I think I think it's really funny. I agree it can be read as proto-feminist, and I think she certainly was a proto-feminist. She didn't know that she was. Mm -hmm. She felt, I mean, there's that terribly sad journal entry from sort of 1838, October 1838, where she she's being hauled over the coals by Trelawney, a man, for not being feminist enough. And she says, why have I not been able to contribute to the cause? She's asking herself. And she says it's because... Partly because I've paid such a high price for my radicalism in my youth, she admits that. But also, mm. she says, because I don't have my mother's gift for political philosophy. She doesn't use the words political philosophy, but she says she doesn't have that gift. Her gift is merely literary. And of course, what she doesn't realize is both by the sheer fact that she was such a good writer and was writing and publishing so early that she had a literary career so early, that is itself, you know a role model and so feminist, but also that, as you say, I mean, Frankenstein is, is proto-feminist and, I mean, others of her novels are explicitly feminist. I mean, um, you know, Valperga is about, uh, you know, a woman who rules, is set in Renaissance Italy and it's sort of based on um, a Renaissance Italian story, you know, history in inverted commas, may not may or may not be true, of um, a woman who was the ruler of one of these Italian city-states and her lover was the ruler of another state and he invades her state and conquers it and expects her to stay and be his bride and she refuses. She's not going to be conquered. She chooses to sail off to her death. I mean, that's a very strong feminist parable. Yeah. And, you know, the sort of more melodramatic Faulkner and so on, they are stories where the sentimental education is doled out by a young woman to the men in her life. I mean, it's, you know, it's not to mention um, Matilda, which is a incestuous melodrama about uh, a girl being in, you know, her father being in love. I mean, you know, they are, I'm not saying that's feminist, but you know, they are very strong, very risky for the time topics. They are, yeah, they are feminist. Yeah. Whereas I also think that, you know, she just didn't, she you know, so much was learned, you know, in early childhood that she didn't perhaps quite realize still how feminist she was, even in her maturity, because, 
you know, it was just like obvious to her. It was common sense. She'd learned it in early child in infancy mm-hmm. and she didn't question it. Whereas if she'd had to get to that point from a more conventional background, as indeed her mother had had to, well, conventional sexually, not conventional, perhaps in other ways, um, you know, who knows? Obviously, I was given the commission and it was fantastic, but I did genuinely want to know the moment I realized I was allowed to think about it in print. I wanted to ask, answer the question, how on earth can a woman become a writer when everything around her says you can't? Because writing all kinds, any kind of making is is such a kind of throwing yourself, it's such an act of hubris, it's such a sort of throwing yourself forward. And women, even now, uh, you know, as quite, you know, as women writers, you know, we, we have such a internalized sense. On the one hand, we know we, we, we are allowed to do it, but still such an internalized set of obstacles to overcome and let, leave alone the professional practical ones, which are still, you know, different critical reactions of, mm-hmm. of well, students in experiments, but also critics, you know, depending on whether the gender of the writer is known to be male or female and, and, and so on. You know, we have, I don't know, even just the size of advances, you know, we have, yeah. su- it's, it's still an obstacle race, as Jermaine Greer called it. It is still an obstacle race. And it, it was unthinkably so 200 years ago. Mm-hmm. And there's not just how did they have the courage, so enormously that, that's incredibly important to ask that and wonder that, but also how just creatively were they able to, to do it and not just produce something really stunted and small. Mary, okay, she'd had the role mother, model of her mother, her mother had always already been dead, but she had the role model of her. But, you know, it, the astonishing thing is, is not only that she wrote a novel, but that she wrote such a good one. Um, you know, and, you know, while pregnant, while helping her stepsister have her first child, while setting up house, while moving the household. Moving so much. (laughs) Yeah, while, but this is all just in the writing of Frankenstein, you know, while her stepsister's killed herself, while Percy's first wife kills herself, while they have a custody battle to try and get custody of his children by Harriet, but while she gets married to Percy, I mean, all these things, enormous things are going on in her life. And she's, you know, not yet 20. And she's, still got the psychic energy to, I don't mean that in a kind of woo-woo way, I mean just the psychological energy to create this fully-fledged myth. I mean, it's astonishing. Where does the, the, the mixture, the coming together of gift and dynamism come from that makes it possible to be a woman writer, the self on the page? You know, it's a really, I'm more and more interested in that. My curiosity about how other women manage to be writers, I mean, in the creative bit, as well as the practical bit, has has, has definitely deepened enormously. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, the more time you spend, and obviously I've spent you know, some time now, um, not with a blank page because it's on screen nowadays, but sitting at the laptop, sit, sitting at your keyboard, and in that moment of having to make it happen, having to make the magic happen, um, the more you realize the 
the very complex identity between you and your writing voice. And I always sort of used to dismiss that because I always used to, you know, you'd, it's, uh, it's a, it's, you know, what lesson 101, isn't it? A creative writing because you find your voice and it's, mm-hmm. you know, it can often mean, you know, some not very well thought out exercises don't actually give people any techniques going forward, but, you know, but it is, you know, who speaks, who's allowed to speak is extraordinarily important. And, you know, in my twenties, I did spend, well, and into my thirties, I spent a long time working in with writing in healthcare because there was a hospital arts movement in those days in Britain. There was a sense of, you know, person-centered care and the arts. You 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 heal up quicker when you're surrounded by the visual arts. And the the creative writing is very powerful in that context because patients, you know, it's a passive role. You you suffer your treatment as well as your condition, and you know you are paraphrased all the time, and you are just. You are you are the broken leg in number bed number four. You aren't yourself. You aren't a person. And although you do get asked things, you know, notes are taken. It's never in your own words. And the potency of speaking and speaking in creative, in literary forms, so authoritative forms, when you're in that situation, is 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 striking. Um, and I never thought there was a link between that and my own practice at all. I thought that's something I did because I was really massively excited by poetry and literature and feel it should be doing its work in extreme circumstances you know birth marriage is death and if it can't be tested to destruction by those kinds of contexts what's it for but actually more and more i think who speaks and who's allowed to speak is absolutely fascinating and what can be said and i think we're still nowhere near finding the margins of what can be said as women writers and we are back. Lauren, I loved that interview. Oh, thank you. Thank you for getting Fiona on the show. Yeah, I saw I saw Fiona do, for those of you who weren't in mine and Lauren's private conversations about Fiona Sampson, I went, saw Fiona do a lecture. It was super entertaining. I didn't know anything about Mary Shelley going into it other than that. I knew at some point we would be covering her on the show and Fiona's such a great public speaker and just knows her stuff and answered the audience questions so well and just made me really want to read Frankenstein and it hasn't really appealed to me before so I was just like let's make this happen. You know sometimes you meet two people and you're like I'm gonna have to get these guys at a dinner party so they can make out. That's kind of like what happened here. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) You're a great matchmaker Hannah. (laughs) I loved as well at the end just how like the like obviously you were talking about Mary Shelley and Mary's work but then also all of the authors that we talk about on the show and then just women writers today and how we're still trying to define that and what that means Mm -hmm. and what limitations are in place and what things people are facing and what it actually means to be a woman writer you know and yeah I think we are still simultaneously like as a woman writer because we can say that right we -hmm. both are it's something that you don't want to be confined to but at the Mm -hmm. same time it is part of your identity so then what does it mean about your work and how does that shape how people are engaging with it and I just think Fiona talked about that so well yeah she did she really did and that was um our interview was so much longer than what you guys heard because we could have just like gone on for days and days and days. Um, but I felt like it was good to sort of give you guys a more concise 
edit of what we uh, what we discussed there. Uh, things that were like left on the cutting room floor too, like more about poetry and how people view your work as a, a woman writer. And um, we really didn't talk a lot about Mary's later life as a single mother, which I think actually would be great for maybe a part two episode and um, sort of her revisions of Frankenstein and how she sort of, um, you know, changed her mind quite a bit on maybe some of the earlier thoughts and became a little bit more conservative as she grew older. Um, So yeah, I would love to have Fiona back on the show to kind of explore that a little bit more. But um, sounds like there's a couple of things that got cut out so that you could include all those Charlotte Bronte references, Lauren. Yeah, well, maybe. (laughs) Don't think that slipped by. I'm trying to make Charlotte Bronte happen. Anyone trying to bring her back? Austin versus Bronte, and we need to like. We know. It's in one vibe. Well, if uh, you say Charlotte Bronte's name three times, she appears. No, so Branwell really appears. going You're for poking <laughs> the wrong Bronte. <laughs> I'm at peace with Branwell though. Now I think. Me too. I'd be yeah. fine if he wanted to come and hang out. I mean, Branwell, open invitation to come on the show. So um, I just want to thank Fiona again for coming on the show, and you guys should definitely check out her book, um, In Search of Mary Shelley. And you can find more about her and her writing at fionasampson.co.uk. Very easy. Good web address, Fiona. That one's easy. Good work on that too. (laughs) So um, guys, this is the last episode that we're doing in April. We will be back in May. Also, um, one quick announcement. I will be attending the Jasna GCR Spring Gala in May. I believe that's on May the 4th. And um, I'm going to be tabling there and we're going to be selling a new Bonnets t-shirt. I'm very excited about it. Um, if you're not there, you can get it on the internets. And we will be donating um, a portion of the proceeds to Chotten House Library. So yeah, more information about that will be on social media. Hannah, where do the people find it? And what is the internet? Someday you will answer this question for me. Not today, Satan. <laughs> you can find us, as always, at Bonnets at Dawn on Instagram and Twitter. I changed it up. I said it the other mm-hmm. way around. Let me, you I want to say it the old way. Let me do it again. Uncomfortable with new things. <laughs> yeah. What's going on my tombstone? Doesn't like change. Okay.